Good morning. Hey, just to be transparent with you, if you don't have the elements for communion, it will not bother me for you to stand up and go and grab them. You'll need them here in just a few moments. If you are a guest with us, I am glad that you're here, uh, that you would join us this morning, and I hope uh, that you feel encouraged while you're here, uh, because we do want you to know that you're welcome here. We would love for you to learn more about our church, and you can do that in a lot of ways, on the website, of course. Uh, all kinds of written information out in the lobby that you can grab, uh, but also you can just come up and talk to us. It's pretty informal here at New Hope. We would love to just answer questions that you have and help you take uh, another step here, uh, getting involved here at the church. If you have your Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, we began a study of the book of Ephesians uh, at the very beginning of the year, and we're slowly walking through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And today, once again, you'll notice that the reference to the scripture is going to be on the screen, but I'm not putting all of the, the passage up on the screen from our primary text. And you'll notice that that's intentional. Um, I requested that we would do that because I would love to see us actually opening up our Bibles together, whether it's on a device or you bring your Bible with you on Sunday morning or you just grab the one that's under the seat in front of you. Just encourage you to find your way to Ephesians chapter 2 as we open up God's word together this morning. I'm going to pray for us and we'll get started. Father, you are so kind. God, we recognize the gift it is to sit together and to open your word and to learn from it. And that's my prayer this morning, that we would learn that our hearts and our minds would be engaged and changed because of our encounter with your word this morning. We recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we seek you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you have memories like this, but maybe you do remember growing up and at some point in your adolescence experiencing the feeling that maybe uh, you don't belong in the family that you find yourself in. Uh, I don't know if you had those experiences. You know, is this really my family? Do I really fit in with this family? Because I just don't feel like I am the same as everybody else around me. And uh, you start to feel me, are these actually my parents? Like, there's no way, right? So imagine with me, engage your imagination with me this morning, and imagine that your parents and you have a frustration. Probably not hard for some of you. Do not even look at the person seated next to you. But imagine there's some tension in the family. And so you, in the midst of that frustration, they've been mean to you. You've probably not responded well to them. You're just frustrated, feeling that, man, I don't even think I belong in this family. And you find your way in the house uh, up to the attic. And you're wandering around in the attic and you find this trunk. It's got dust all over it. And so you kind of clean it up and you realize it's locked. And you find your way into that trunk and you pop it open. And inside the trunk, there's all kinds of different things. But among all of the things that are kept in this locked trunk up in the attic, you find uh, some papers that affirm what you had been feeling the whole time. That you were, in fact, abducted as a baby. You were taken and you do not belong in the family that you find yourself in at the current time. Now imagine this. As you discover these papers, you read about your birth parents. And your birth mom was a famous singer from France who everybody knew. And your birth father was a Nobel Prize winning author and a famous basketball player. And it hits you. I knew that I was different. I knew that I was special, that I did not belong in this family, and this affirms everything. And so you keep reading on these papers, and you come to find out that these birth parents were extremely wealthy, and they've left you a sizable inheritance for you to enjoy the rest of your life. Now, I know it's a stretch, 
Some of you are there right now, though, like, maybe it's not. Do we have an attic? Like, <laughs> but imagine with me what a discovery like that would do in your life. You're up there in the attic, you find the paperwork, you start to read, you start to realize that everything is not as you thought it was. You would be changed forever. You would begin to see everything and everyone in your life different, where you came from, your true identity, the opportunities and abilities that you now believe that you have because of this truth, the resources that are available at your fingertips that you can use now, your future. You would redefine the entire purpose that you had in life. After that day, your life would never be the same ever again. You'd come down the stairs of that attic completely changed forever. Everything new, everything different. But here's the thing. If that were true, what was true about you before you went up into that attic was there before you discovered it. I mean, your real parents, they were your parents, even though you didn't yet know it. And when the truth was revealed to you, you realized it was rooted in a history and that you had the DNA to prove that it was true. It was true while it was hidden from your sight, but it did not become true for you until you responded to it, until you realized that it was true and you made the right response to that truth for it to change everything for you. Now, hold that thought. We'll come back to it in just a moment. But as far-fetched as that story was, I don't think it was hard for you to picture it in your mind. Many of you had no problem, though you may not have had an attic growing up that you could get into for storage. You had no problem picturing that in your mind. You walked up the stairs and heard the creak of the wooden steps, made your way into the attic. You could picture the dust on a trunk. You could picture yourself opening that trunk and finding that paperwork. You could even picture in your mind with the power of your imagination, the emotions that would flood over you. And some of you are still planning out how to spend the inheritance that you just found. You're still daydreaming about it. See, it's not that hard for us to imagine. Our minds more specifically about our minds, our imaginations, our ability to image something, to create a picture as we reflect on, we remember, or we plan ahead in our lives. Our imaginations are this powerful thing that has an impact on our lives, the way that we live our everyday life. But you might say to yourself, but I don't really have much of an imagination. Maybe you've believed that imaginations for people who are lazy. And they just get stuck daydreaming all day. Or you think that imaginations for children who are playing with toys and imagining fantasy worlds or people that want to pretend that they're not having to live in the reality that they're in. But that's not what imagination is at its core. Those things require engaging the imagination. But that is not what your imagination is at its core. Think about it. If I said, picture a tree, you just did. Or if I was to ask you, what is the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen in your life? You could probably describe to me, if not what it looked like, you could also go into detail about where you were and why the sun was so beautiful as it set. If I were to ask you, walk me through the scariest moment or the most embarrassing memory that you have in your life, you could tell me details about the most embarrassing moments. I picture for myself, having grown up in South Florida, finding myself in one of Tennessee's very few uh, snow and ice storms when I was in college and not understanding that you had to watch every one of your steps and slipping on the ice and falling. I can tell you who saw it. I can tell you their reaction. I can tell you what it felt like laying on the ground on the campus of Johnson University 20 years ago with great detail. Our imaginations are a powerful thing that we have. In fact, researchers found that the imagination, as you engage it, if you were to just try to picture the rotating of a shape, when you just do what I just asked, picture rotating a shape in your brain, up to 12 different parts of your brain are engaged while you're doing that. 
Aristotle said it this way, the soul never thinks without an image. The soul never thinks without an image. And the parts of your brain that are engaged with your imagination are fascinating. And they're influenced by the world that's all around you, creating mental pictures of different things that you've experienced. And while there's quite a bit of the imagination that's still a mystery to researchers and to science as we're trying to understand it better, there are a few things that most researchers will agree upon, mainly that there are three main factors to the forming and engagement of your imagination. One is your environment. So the things that you picture and you see, meaning the environment that you're in right now is forming memories in your brain that you'll be able to recall later on if I were to ask you about this room that we're sitting in right now. Your memories in general. So like we talked about, remembering key events and key things engages your imagination. And then your understanding of just how the world works in general. So if I said picture somebody hitting a golf uh, uh, swinging a golf club, you could picture that because you understand how the physics of that movement work in our world. You understand the different elements, and so your imagination can engage because you understand how the world should work when you're doing that. So what you currently experience gives you the ability to create these mental images. Your memories do, and so does your understanding of how the world works. Now, you might be thinking, dude, what are you talking about? The Bible is pretty clear, too, that God gave us the gift of the mind that we have and the ability for us to engage our imagination. It's a gift, and it's actually throughout the Bible we're called to engage our imagination multiple different times in multiple different ways. Let me give you two examples, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. If you'll walk with me in, in your memory and your understanding of one of the most pivotal stories in all of the Bible, the Exodus. Now, many of us, I say that, and you're done for a few minutes. You're like, I already know it. Grew up. I grew up in church. I know all about the Exodus. But just walk with me just for a minute. God's people have been enslaved to Egypt and Pharaoh and his dictatorship and his rule, his oppression for 400 years. All dignity and freedom stripped away from them as they work and labor day after day. Enslaved to these people. And God sends Moses, a man who did not want to go at first. And as he and God kind of went back and forth, God uh, made it very clear to him that he needed to go and to set his people free. And so Moses goes and he begins to uh, negotiate with Pharaoh, who's unwilling. And so then there's these plagues that come in. And in your imagination, you can remember them, the plague of the frogs and the hail and the blood, ultimately culminating because of Pharaoh's unwillingness to work with God's people and releasing them in the death of the firstborn children who lived in homes where blood had not been wiped on the doorpost. We call it Passover. Pharaoh finally relinquishes control of these people and they're released to go free and Moses is leading them when Pharaoh changes his mind and begins to give chase to these people as they're trying to escape. And they come to the Red Sea and Moses puts his staff in the water and the water separates, miraculously moves away so that the people can walk on dry ground to freedom. A memory in their brains that would be burned with such clarity that they would be able to recall it for the rest of their days. Anybody who had been walking and felt the sand between their toes on dry ground as they walked through the middle of a sea. But what I find most fascinating about this story is God's instruction to his people once they are rescued. They're to set up a memorial, a, a continued practice where they would engage their imagination and they would remember what God had done in delivering them from slavery. And in Exodus chapter 13... God gives them these instructions to not just the generation who had walked across that sea, but he gives them these instructions 
to give to the generations that would come afterwards, people who had not personally experienced it. And in Exodus 13, verse 8, he says this. You're to say this to generation after generation. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. What the Lord did for you when you came out of Egypt, well, you weren't there if you're in the generations that would come next. But yet God wants them to remember, to engage their memory, to engage their imagination, and to remember what he had done when he delivered them. Why? Because God's inviting them to imagine themselves into that story. Because the benefits of that redemption, that rescue mission, were theirs to enjoy as well. Well, in the New Testament, there's another rescue that takes place where God calls us to engage our imagination and to remember as well. And each week we do that as a church. See, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, a lot took place. As a matter of fact, if you read in your Bible, John chapters 13 through 17, that's all that night. And so they're taking in, these followers of Jesus are taking in all kinds of different events and experiences, and they're listening to him teach, and there's just so much for them to learn. And in the midst of it, Jesus gives them this object lesson, if you will. He plants a seed that would be realized later on in their practices. But he gives them something that he wants them to do. He tells them about what's about to take place and how they're to remember it because of the freedom that it's going to offer them from their sins. And so Luke describes this for us. And so if you have the elements with you, we're going to participate in this engagement of our imagination as we remember together. Luke describes Jesus stopping and reminding his disciples about what was about to take place. It's this fascinating interaction. Later, they would reflect on it, and they would remember this visual picture of Jesus being betrayed, of his unjust trial, of his brutal execution on a cross, of his beautiful sacrifice on their behalf for their freedom and rescue and his resurrection that overcame death. And each week when we gather, we participate in this act of remembering this rescue mission, this freedom that's been offered to those of us who are in Christ. And so Luke describes Jesus' words this way. He says, and he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me and what I gave up for you each time you do this. And so we take the bread together and we remember the sacrifice of Jesus. I realized in first service that when I'm chewing, you can probably all hear it pretty clearly. It's the, that's great. <laughs> Verse 20 says this, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you actively engaging the imagination to remember the blood shed for the forgiveness of their sins. And we remember the sacrifice of Jesus every week and the forgiveness that it offers when we partake. Let me pray for us and we'll continue. Father, we thank you for the gift of remembering because each week we need it. Each week when we fall short, we come back to this moment where we remember the freedom that you've offered us from the bondage of slavery to sin. And so we thank you, Father, and we give our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.
You see, the Bible offers us an invitation to imagine ourselves into the story of God. That's the invitation all through Scripture. Imagine yourself into God's story. Now, please hear me. I am not saying that every story in the Bible is about you imagining yourself into it. In fact, that's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, if I'm being honest, when we say David and Goliath is about you overcoming your giants. No, it's not. David and Goliath is not a story about you overcoming the giants in your life. You can find a way in the Bible to say God's called you to overcome hard things. Just don't use David and Goliath because that's not what it's about. But the invitation, while not to in, in, like imagine yourself into every element of Scripture, it's to imagine yourself as in God's big plan, his big story, and your part in that story. Here's why that's important for Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 is this book in our lives before Jesus. And he describes you were dead in your transgressions. You were uh, completely controlled by your sins. And we talked about that last week, how many of us can recall that with great clarity. I can remember what it was like before I knew Jesus, that I put all of my hope, all of my contentment in things that continued to let me down. Not all bad things. And sometimes they delivered, but it was always temporary. And these things that I thought would give me satisfaction that I thought would bring me some sort of a peace. They just continued to let me down, and I continued to be disappointed time and time and time again. But God, because he is rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, while we were dead in our sins, made us alive in Christ, he gave us a whole new perspective. He gave us a whole new life. Everything should be changed as a result. Well, Paul, as he's already done in Ephesians, is going to continue describing the after picture. It's the before and the after. Many, we've seen tons of these pictures all over the place. I'm not going to do this. This was a great opportunity to get Ben back for the birthday stuff, but I decided not to do it. Okay, I'm, gonna give, I'm really not going to do it, though I do hope he was watching. <laughs> it's a before and after picture. The after picture is Jesus has changed everything in your life. He's given you peace and contentment. For many of us, it's lost on us because we take it for granted or we assume we already know everything. But for Paul, he continually comes back to that truth because he wants us to actively engage our imagination in picturing what our life was like before and after as a result of knowing Jesus. So he's going to continue describing the after picture in the two verses we're going to look at in Ephesians 2, verses 6 and 7 this morning. Here's what Paul writes. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Let's break that down just a little bit. He starts out saying that God raised us up with Christ, meaning you were incapable of raising yourself up. You were dead in your sins, meaning your lifestyle before you knew Jesus was going to lead you to eternal death. And there's nothing you could do about it. It's a very humbling thing to come to realize. There's no amount of effort, no amount of skill that you have, no amount of willpower that you can exert on your life to get you from death to life. Now, we pursue a lot of things in hopes that they're going to somehow give us life, and they leave us empty every single time. You were powerless to raise yourself up from death to life. It required something outside of yourself to do that for you, and God is the only one who did that for you. And if you look back in Ephesians 1, so just go back in your Bible from Ephesians 2 back to Ephesians 1 in verse 19, Paul describes this power. 
He says this, in his his incomparably great power, I love reading, uh, for us who believe. So this incomparably great power is for us who believe. That power that is available to us is the same mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead. Meaning the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is the same power that he uses to take us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Keep that in mind. And then he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Well, that's the first of two times. So he uses it in chapter one. He uses it in chapter two, this heavenly realms. What is he meaning? Well, this again is an an invitation to use our imagination. It's an invitation. It's It's a picture of heaven. He's calling us to picture what it would be like to have an invitation to sit at the table of God. So two, two images. Picture that you've been invited to a great dinner. And there's a little name card at your place. I, w- I preached a wedding last night. It was wonderful. And at the reception, I went to the table that I was supposed to sit at, and there was a little name card for me. So before I got to the seat, that was my seat. No one else was to sit there. That seat was reserved for me. And though physically I wasn't there yet, all of the rights and privileges of sitting in that seat were going to be mine. And sometimes, not all the time, when you preach a wedding, you get seated at table one and released to the buffet first. And that was one of the privileges last night. It was great. When I got to the table, someone had moved me, which won't happen in heaven, but they had moved me over one space. But all the rights and privileges of that seat were mine even before I was sitting in the seat. Or picture it like this. It's like a picture of the Oval Office. Every president who's ever served in that office and sat in the seat behind that desk has had the rights and privileges of that position of president. They've had power, and everyone in the world recognizes who that person is when they're serving in that office, when they're seated at that chair. But here's the thing. Even when they're not present in the office, all the rights, privileges, and power that goes with sitting in that seat are theirs, even when they're not physically in the seat. And this is what Paul is saying is that when when we're baptized in the Christ, God raises us up. And in that moment, we are given a seat at the table in heaven. And all the rights and privileges, the confidence that comes from knowing that our future is secure, the hope that no matter what happens in this world, that we have something else waiting for us. Those privileges are ours now, even though we're not physically at that table yet. That spiritual reality is true for us. But he says there's a condition for it. The condition for that reality to be yours is that you are united to Christ. In verse 6 and in verse 7, the Apostle Paul will say, for those who are in Christ Jesus. He repeats himself in both verses. Two verses, he says it two different times. And this is the Apostle Paul's favorite way of describing union with Christ. If you're someone who underlines or highlights in your Bible, I would highly recommend you underline that word. And if you're someone who wants to do a word study, your hand's going to be sore because the Apostle Paul, in his letters in the New Testament, uses the phrase in Christ or in him 160 times to communicate the importance of what it means to be united with Christ. As a matter of fact, if you flip back to chapter 1 in the beginning of our study of Ephesians, there's this really long sentence from verses 3 to 14. And that long sentence, the Apostle Paul uses the phrase in him or in Christ or in Christ Jesus, 11 has blessed us. So he's given all these blessings to us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So all of these spiritual blessings that come to us are because we are united to Christ. Every spiritual blessing 
that you would have in your life is yours because you are united to Jesus. Not because you've earned it. Not because you live this highly spiritual life or somehow the decisions that you're making are impressing God. All that stuff is fine. To choose to do the right thing. To work really hard. Look, I, I stand by this. I continue to stand by this. Grace is absolutely opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. And to understand that is to say this, your effort isn't going to get you into God's good graces. That happens because of Jesus and what Jesus did for you. One author said it this way, Jesus is the fountain of God's blessings and our union with him is the fountainhead from which those blessings flow into our life. Verse seven says, and God intends to continue blessing us for all of eternity. As long as we remain united to Christ, we must remain united to Jesus. He says that he wants to give us the incomparable riches of his grace that are available to us if we will engage our imaginations and remember that those blessings are available to us not because of our effort, but because of the kindness that God displayed to us in Christ. It's because of what Jesus did and God displaying his kindness to us that offers that to us. So this entire new life, coming down from the attic, discovering our new identity, the new purpose that you have in life, everything being different, contentment and peace, not getting caught up in the drama that this life has to offer to you, being a source of peace and hospitality and kindness to people, your ability to be blessed by God with all of these different things hinges on union with Christ. I like the way Constantine Campbell said it this way. Union with Christ is the webbing that holds it all together. Union with Christ is connected to everything else. Every Pauline, so every time Paul uh, goes after a certain theme in the scriptures or has a pastoral concern for people, it ultimately coheres with the whole through their common bond. So all of Paul's writing kind of points us to this one truth. Be united to Jesus. Union with Christ. Now, here's where my mind went as I studied this. Two places that I hope are an encouragement to you. Paul's not the first person to emphasize the importance of being united to Christ. Jesus himself did it. You remember that long night where Jesus did all kinds of teaching to his disciples, and they're trying to take it all in. Well, one of the teachings that he was offering to them on that night is found in John chapter 15. And in the first 10 verses, 11 different times, he'll use a form of the word abide. Abide in me. Or your translation might say, remain in me. Abide in me, remain in me. And he gives us this picture to engage our imaginations. And so you picture it. Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. I'm the vine, meaning I'm the source of life that flows into the branches that gives them the ability to produce fruit. And so then Jesus says, so apart from being connected to the life-giving source that is Jesus, you can do nothing. You can't produce fruit in your life that will honor God. You're incapable of it on your own. No amount of effort, skill, or willpower is going to produce the fruit that God wants to produce in your life when you're united to Jesus. He says, when you try to do that, and boy, do we. Do we not crawl down the edge of that branch and try to just staple some fruit on it so it looks all Christian? We learn Christianese, and we only do Christian things, and we promote our perfect Christian life, and, and we're always trying to be and produce fruit and show everybody, look at my life, look at my life. And Jesus is saying, that's not the point. See, in John 15, Jesus says, you want to be united to Christ? Here's your job. Stay attached to the vine. Just stay connected to Jesus. And he'll take care of producing fruit in you. 
What does, that, what does that mean? Does that mean I just have to do all these spiritual disciplines? Sure, those are involved in it, but don't let the spiritual discipline become the idol that makes you think you're producing the fruit on your own. Spiritual disciplines are a means to an end, and the end is unity with Christ. Stay united to Jesus. Well, the other picture that pops into my mind is, is this image. It's a sailboat. I picture a sailboat. It comes to my mind. Whenever I think about what it means to follow God, I've only been on a sailboat once. And so let me ask this question. What is it that helps a sailboat move? Because my one time on it, I couldn't do it. And the sailor that was with me, like skill matters. And they would, they would tell you this. Skill is vital. You have to have certain abilities and understand certain things about the boat and about the environment that you're in and where you're at and what part of the ocean you're in. All those things matter. But they can't get the boat to move. In order for the boat to move, it requires something outside of yourself that you can't manifest on your own. They need the wind. When there is no wind, there is no movement. Meaning I can try really, really hard to do all the right things and to create the perfect looking life. And it can go in the exact opposite direction that God really wants it to go. I can put all this effort into creating this picture perfect, awesome life that everyone envies and looks at and wants more than anything else. And it cannot be moving in the direction that God wants it to move. Now, the skills are important, but they can't get the movement that's necessary. Jesus describes this in John chapter 3 when he describes what we need, which is spiritual wind, which is the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He says, the, spirit blow, the wind blows where it wishes, wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit, everyone who has the Holy Spirit living in them, their job is to allow the Spirit to move in their life. Do all the things necessary to understand where the Spirit's leading you, but do not fall victim to thinking you're the one creating the movement. Because you're not. But we sure do like to, don't we? We feel like we've done everything we need to do and we're not getting the movement we want, so what do we do? We pull out the oars and we put them in the water and we say, God, I'm just gonna, we need to go this way, Lord. I know you're calling me this way, but God, I just think that I got a little bit of a better plan if we go this way. And I'm doing all the right things, God. Let's just go this way. And what Jesus is saying is this, your job's not to put an oar in the water. Your job's to just hold up the sail. Be a sail holder. Stay attached to the vine. Hold up the sail. That's your job as a follower of Jesus. Let him produce things in you and find your deepest joy in being united to him. Let him take care of the rest. So, so let me ask you this question. Here's the, the application. Because it's hard to put a bow on a sermon like this and just make it really heartwarming. So I, I want to challenge you to do a little bit of homework this week. A little bit of inventory of your heart. Are you somebody who's living like you have a seat at the table? And you know it because of your unity with Christ. Or are you someone who's constantly living trying to earn your seat at the table, doing more, achieving more, deserving more, to try to impress God when he is as impressed as he will ever need to be in what Jesus has already done for you? Are you experiencing union with Christ? And has the union really, with Christ really changed your life? I mean, have you come down the stairs of that attic, so to speak, with a whole different view of everything in your life, all the experiences, all the relationships are influenced because of the union you're sharing and experiencing with Jesus? 
The Bible says that the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is the same power that he uses when you're baptized into Christ. You go down into a watery grave. The old is dead. The old is past. It is gone. And you are raised to walk in the newness of life. Are you walking in the newness of life? Have you actually seen what the union that you share with Christ is producing in the life around you. Let me give you a couple examples. One is coming right after what is at our heart. Let's look at a before and after picture. Money. I mean, really. No, I'm not going to ask you to just give to the church, but just in general, just think about money. Before Christ, money was my greatest source of what? Of peace, contentment, control. That I could rest easier when I knew I had a certain amount of money in the bank. I slept better when I knew that I had saved enough. I was planning for retirement. I could spend money on what I wanted to spend it on. I could go out and buy the things that I wanted to buy. I can go and eat at the restaurants I want to eat at. When I'm living in that, I find myself having more peace than when I don't have it. It's not the result of union with Christ. The after picture Because of my union with Christ, I realized that everything I've been given is simply a gift that I'm supposed to take care of for this season of my life. So when God gives me things, I'm going to steward it. I'm going to steward it well. I'm going to be wise. I'll plan for the future. But the future doesn't hold my hope with money. Jesus has secured my future. The the seat at the table is already secured for me. What about your relationships? I mean, really. Before Christ, that image, that picture, you can say that my relationships were all about what people did and gave to me. That's why drama arises in our relationships, because we feel betrayed or we feel like we're not getting what we're supposed to get out of the relationship. I want this and I'm not getting this. And so we place the expectations of our contentment on our spouses more often than not. And if you're not giving me what I feel I need in the relationship, why are we in this relationship? And we see things unravel. Or we place the burden of our ego on our children. So you better live a certain way and represent this family and make me look good. And if you don't make me look good, I'm going to discipline you. And all of a sudden we have tension with our children because they're not doing exactly what we want them to do and making us look the way we want to look. The after picture. Now that I'm in Christ, I realize that all the relationships are a gift. That my spouse is a gift that God has entrusted to me to take care of. So my job is to serve, not to be served. That I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to outserve my wife instead of expecting her to serve me in certain ways. And my children, they are a gift for me to raise and to prepare and to send out for God's glory, not my own glory. See, we spend a whole lot of time climbing to the edge of a branch to try to produce false fruit. And we stick our oars in the water and try to redirect the path of our life. And what God is saying In John 15, what Jesus told us, and in John chapter 3, what Jesus told us, in Ephesians 2, what Paul is trying to reiterate from the teachings of Jesus is this. Would you just stay attached to the vine and let him produce the fruit? Would you get the oar out of the water and hold up the sail so the spirit can blow where he wants to blow and produce in you what only he can produce? Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you What an incredible gift it is to be invited into your story because of what Jesus has done for us. It can be intimidating and difficult, Father. We can struggle our way through it. 
But this week, as we take an inventory of our heart, Father, we're asking that you would make clear to us the areas that we really need to release. We need to get the ore out of the water. We need to crawl back and get attached to the vine and stop trying to produce fruit on our own. Would you help us by engaging our minds and our hearts this week, reminding us of the deep love that you had for us. We can love you because you first loved us and sent Jesus to die for us. May that produce in us the life that you've promised for us. And God, we ask you for this blessing in Jesus' name and all God's people said.